Esther chapter number 9. As I've said, we're going to conclude our, our time with Esther um, this evening. Chapter 10 really only has there a few little verses in it, so we're kind of just lumping it all in and finishing what with a message called the Day of Deliverance. Because if you stayed with these studies, you'll have seen that this has been a journey, has it not? It's almost got a soap opera style to it. It's almost like it's been um, written as a story. But again, it's, it's historical fact. And um, we've seen the rise of the villain. And then we've seen the villain get his comeuppance, haven't we? And we've seen the heroes and the heroine rise. And, and uh, we've caught... Oh, really? Oh, dear. Dear, oh, dear. Well, they didn't do it here because they're still alive. So, where was I? You've thrown me there, brother. I've got to be honest. (laughs) It's all right. I'll sort you out afterwards. (laughs) Um, So, we've come along this journey, haven't we? We've come along a journey and we've seen ups and downs. It's been a roller coaster. And these final chapters in Esther, chapter number 9 and and chapter number 10, um, record a great victory and celebration by the Jewish people. The Jews overcome their enemies. They institute a feast to celebrate this. And uh, again, they celebrate the fact that they've overcome their enemies and also that some of their number have risen to considerable positions of power within the the main uh, influence of the world and, and the kingdom here. So it would be easy to read these two chapters, and really chapter number nine, and, and just see it presented as national pride, that it's nothing more than an expression of Jewish nationalism. But the only way you could say that is if you hadn't read any of the other chapters. Because when you've read all the other chapters, you'll see that that the, the Jews here are in a place where they usher in this face that we're going to see as we get through it, where they're, where they're spared and saved, is because of the hand of God. And although the name of God's not mentioned, and this is one of the things of people that, that don't, don't want to take any stock in this book, because the name of God's not there, and it's just, as we read chapter number 9, as I've said, it's, it's them just celebrating, you know, national pride and, and Jewish nationalism because the name of God's not there. You know, if you read it from start to finish, and if you don't believe me, go back and listen to my sermons as we've gone through this, and you will see God everywhere. He's there. He's absolutely there. And although his name's not mentioned in Esther, if you read it through the biblical lens, through spiritual lens, and look at it, you'll see God there. He's clearly revealed in there as his hand is upon the people. It's undeniable that God has been protecting his people. Only God could do this. This isn't accident. This isn't coincidence. This is God behind the scenes moving all the things that ultimately as the enemy attacks to destroy the people of God, to ultimately destroy the messianic line, to stop us being able to stand here and say we have been redeemed because of the Lord Jesus Christ who came as a babe into the tribe of Judah as a Jew. The enemy wanted to stop that and so stop our salvation. 
God moves. And he's been moving all the way through Esther. So it's not just simply a a, a picture of national pride here. What's going on is also rejoicing in the God that stands behind that nation, the God of Israel, Jehovah the Lord. And what these things have done as we've gone through this have have reminded, uh, number one, the Jews as they celebrate, but also us today by extension, is a simple phrase, and I want to say this because this is the message. This is the message of all of Scripture. This is the message of the Incarnation. This is the message of Esther. It's the message of Genesis. It's the message of Revelation. It's the message of the Gospels. You want to hear the message? Say yes. Okay. Good, because I'm going to tell you. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He's a faithful, covenantal God. And thank God that he is. Because without his promises, we are lost. So he's preserved Israel. Why? Because he's promised to bring the Redeemer through Israel. Why? Because he's made covenants with Israel. And those covenants that he made, thankfully, were unconditional, some of them. That they didn't depend on Israel's performance. And I'm thankful for a God that makes covenants like that. Because all the other gods, lowercase g, false gods, they don't make covenants like that. Everything's a condition. Performance-based. But Jehovah cuts unconditional covenants with Abraham going out by extension to David, but by extension again, the new covenant, which we have been grafted into. We're part of that. That's our salvation. And thankfully, that's an unconditional covenant. God didn't say, if you will, I will. That's the covenant of the law, Sinai. You read Jeremiah, he says, I will put a new heart in you. I was talking with somebody just recently in this course that I was doing, you know, wrestling. Can you lose your salvation with any other God that promises it? Yes, you can. But with our God, it's an unconditional promise. Once saved, always saved. Not because of us, but because of him and his word. So as we we get through this, and we are focused on Israel, but by extension, you know, every time God is faithful to Israel, it's a reminder that he's faithful to us. So when we look at the world today, and as, you know, Brian mentioned about, you know, the desecration that's going on, you look at the world today and you see Israel on the map, you see they've been regathered, they've kept their identity after 2,000 years nearly, of exile. They have been persecuted. Leader after leader has tried to wipe them out. They've been all over the world, yet they've kept their identity. No other race like that. No other nationality like that. No other identity like that. It's all been assimilated. It's gone. Apart from Israel. Apart from the Jew. And they're back in the land. And every time I look at that, I go, thank you, Lord. Because that just means, selfishly for me, 
that the promises he made to me, he's going to be faithful in too. So as we see the book of Esther play out to its kind of crescendo, what really is happening is that we're seeing God keeping his promises, but in the midst of God keeping his promise is the sovereign God that sits over it all. There is in the world this playing out. And this is the tension between God is sovereign. Yes, he is. But at the same time, these things are playing out where it looks like possibly, maybe the people of God are going to be wiped out. Now, we face the same stuff today. I shared this with Paul this afternoon. That yes, God is sovereign. But yet we live in this world where there's chaos around. Where there's times where we look like maybe it's out of control. It looks like it's out of control. Or maybe it feels like it is. And then we have to step out of that tension because that's a reality. Let's not pretend that we don't think like that at times. Especially when we're up against it. But we move out of the tension of living in this world as fallen people in the fallen world and we get back into the word of God and remember he keeps his promises. He's sovereign. He's over all. So let's get into the the text and um, we're going to see uh, what goes on here. Because remember, there's a tension here too. And the tension rolls over from last week, if you remember. Was it last week? It was, I think it was. Um, the tension rolls over. What was the tension? You had these two decrees, remember? She so had the first decree, which was one, you know, of, of death. The second decree given to Israel was one of hope and life. But these two decrees are still in place according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, and they're going to collide. So that's what we, what we see. Let's, let's get into it. And first of all, we're going to see the victory is won. So as we read down, we're going to go from verse number one and, and, and pick up in certain parts of it. It takes us all the way up to about verse number 16, where this part of the passage describes what happens when those two edicts, those two decrees uh, collide. So you've got the decree of Haman, again, the one of death, and then you have the one of Mordecai, the one of hope and life. So both of these uh, decrees specified the 13th day of Adar as the day which they could be carried out. So this is the kind of thing that's running along in the background here. You know, Haman's gone, but the decree's still running. The clock's ticking towards that date, 13th of Adar. And the two decrees were then to come into action on the same day. And Haman's edict, as we hopefully remember, was the command to the residents of Persia that they could go out and annihilate the Jews, plunder their goods on that day. Mordecai's edict said that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves uh, against any who tried to carry out Haman's edict on that day. So what's going to be the outcome of where these two uh, uh, edicts, these two worldviews almost collide? Death, life and hope. What's going to happen? Well, if you look at verse number one, you don't have to go too far. And the text tells us, doesn't keep us hanging in suspense for very long. It says in verse number one of chapter nine, now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put into execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, then it has this little thing in brackets, little spoiler. Though it was turned to the contrary, 
that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. So the text tells us, lets us into the little detail, that although the Jews were to be victims, they came out victorious. Beautiful. Beautiful. The tables were turned. Now what was the cause of this victory, which is what I really want to get to? What was the cause of this upturn in fortunes of the Jewish people? Was it the Jews had superior numbers? Was it their superior weaponry? Was it their superior strategy? How did they win? Not any of those things. Look at verse number two. The Jews gathered themselves together in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Azarias to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. The fear of them fell upon all people. Now, the question is, what made these Jews such a terrifying enemy? Did they dress up? Did they do, uh, you know, make themselves look scary? Did they try the Vlad the Impaler technique, you know? Or did they dress and put blue paint on their face, try and attack, scare the people to death? No record of that whatsoever uh, in the Jews and their fighting strategy. So there's no reason for us to think that the Jews did anything in and of themselves to get themselves to a position while everybody feared them. Because what had changed, really? The only change is that officially the Jews that could defend themselves. So the people that had gathered around the first edict, who had been cheerleaders towards Haman and the destruction of the people, they sat and watched and waited as the countdown clock rolled forward for the day when they could attack. And really only this change is that the Jews could defend themselves, and I'm pretty sure the Jews would have defended themselves anyway. So what's changed? What's happened? Again, we can only be pointed back to the Lord and the pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter number 2. Deuteronomy 2. Again, you get back into this uh, times of war, holy war. The conquest of Canaan, Deuteronomy 2, verse number 25. God said, This day will I begin to put under, or to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. Turn to chapter 12, look at verse 25. Here now Moses repeats. Deuteronomy 11, verse 25. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon, as he has said unto you. Turn to Joshua, chapter number 2. And again, we're not hitting every verse, but we're just establishing a little pattern. Joshua, chapter number 2, verse 9. Here's what Rahab says to the spies. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, 
and that your terror is fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Why are they fainting? Why are they in terror? Remember, this is Jericho, that citadel of safety. These uh, Jews that are wandering the wilderness and are coming out and into the promised land, this band of, of, of people, this nomad people that are coming, you know, what did they threaten the walls of Jericho? But their, their reputation had gone before them. And what was it? It was what the Lord had promised he would do. Deuteronomy 2. I'll begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. Rahab just confirms the promise of God. All she does at that point is enter into the stream of truth that God has already said. Recognizing not the people, but the God of the people, Jehovah. Jehovah. Now these words are, are spoken in context of holy war and God is, is using it. And people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's just a warmonger. Listen, God knows what he was doing. The people that were being attacked and, and exterminated were, were, were wicked people. And God knew that if this campaign wasn't waged, they would not be able to take the land, those people. There's a picture there of sin in our life, really, is, is what it is. That we have to be radical. We have to cut it out. We can't tolerate it. If we let it lie, it springs up. And it does for us. We see this in the history of Israel. Haman is an evidence of that, is he not? Haman the Agagite. King Agag. We'll have a look at this. But later on in the, in, the, in, the, in the message. So God is going before the people. Again, the name of God is not mentioned, but it is. Because this is God. God is doing this. God is with his people. So back in Esther chapter number 9, we see that you know, the Jews ultimately are going to have, have the victory. Verse number 2 tells us that you know, it's the fear, and we, we, we connect that with the truth that God is doing this. That there is this victory. Down to verse number five, the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. You get a bit a little on in the text, and you get to, to verse number 12, and you see that the king said unto Esther the queen, the Jews have slain, destroyed 500 men in Shushan, that's the palace, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted of thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. So the king uh, told Esther what's happened, updates her in the events, and then says to her, what else do you want me to do for you? Esther responds, verse 13, she asks for two things. Verse 13 of Esther 9. Then said Esther, if it please the king, that it be granted to the Jews, which are in Shushan, that's the palace area, to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree, 
and let Haman's ten sons be, sons be hanged upon the gallows. So number one, she asked that the Jews be given one more day to carry out Mordecai's decree. So what she's doing there is she's allowing space for the complete destruction of those that had set themselves against God's people. And again, tying into what I was saying, she's not doing this because she's vindictive. She's doing this because she knows what happens if you don't go all the way. Haman is an example of that. Haman is an example of that. And this is what God commanded the people to do in holy war. And Esther wanted to make sure that God's people faithfully carried out this holy war against those who were under God's curse. So that's the first thing. She says, one more day. And then the second is closely related in the fact that she wants the bodies of Haman's sons to be hung publicly. Now, again, you may say, well, this seems a bit gruesome. You know, a bit of vindictiveness here, a little bit too much, it's, it's going over. But the important truth is here that it made a theological point. It declared, number one, that these men were under God's curse. Joshua did the same thing. Uh, look at Joshua chapter number 8, verse 29. That battle at Ai. He did the same thing with the, the, the bodies of the Canaanites' kings. Look at verse 29 of Joshua 8. It says, And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide. As soon as the sun was come down, Joshua commanded they should take the carcass down from the tree, cast it into the entering of the gate of the city, and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remains unto this day. So this is what Esther's asked for. And it's not to hang them out and leave them out. It's to just make that point to go all the way, to finish the process and then publicly display what happens to those that are under the curse of God and who stand against God's people. Remember, this is holy war being played out. Now, back in Esther 9, as we we go through this, there's one other detail that, that we want to bear out in the victory. It's beautiful is that three times in the passage we're told that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. Three times. Mordecai's decree permitted them to take the plunder, to take the loot. But they refused to do so because they understood that this was a matter of holy war. By refusing to take the plunder, they avoided the sin that led to Saul's downfall. Let's go back. It's full circle. 1 Samuel chapter number 15. And we'll uh, not read all of it, but we'll... Well, we might. Why not? We're here for a long time, not a good time, right? That's, that's what we're here. Look at... Look at this because this is important in, the, in, in what, what's going on. And, and we should know it, but I want to just remind ourselves of it. 1 Samuel chapter number 15, verse number 1. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken unto the voice and the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way 
when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all them that they have and spare them not, both, but slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and ass. Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in Telim, 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amal, Amal, oh dear, oh, Amal, Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from the land of the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites, but from Havilah until Comus to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Again, distant relation to Haman. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, refuge they destroyed utterly. So they took the loot. They took the plunder. Verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaning then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? I mean, there's a comedic element to that, there really is. But it's a serious matter. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. Notice what he does there. Tries to change it round, that we've done this for God's benefit. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou was little in thine own sight, was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil, and did evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the chief of things which should have been destroyed, the sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, it is better to obey, to obey, sorry, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat 
of the rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, stubbornness is of iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee from being king. We get into Esther chapter number 9 and we find, and look at verse number 15. For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together in the 14th day, also the month of Adar, slew 300 men at Shushan, but on the prey they laid not their hands. I think there's a concept here that they don't want to go down the same road as they did before. They understand what this is about. This is a holy war. This is under the direction of the Lord and their refusion to take the plunder. And I think it's a beautiful little tie-in to where this all started because Haman, relative of Agag, wouldn't have been there if Agag hadn't been destroyed. God knows, and he knows better, and he knows best. So the victory's been well and truly won. That's the good news. Uh, and then because the victory's been won, you get into verses 16 and to 28 there, and you'll see the feast has begun. The Jews have gained mastery over those who have hated them. And because of this, as they like to do, they institute a religious festival to, to memorialize this great moment in this history of God's people. Now, this is only one of two Jewish feasts that are instituted by the people and not God. All the other ones you'll read in Exodus, Leviticus, the Moedim, the appointed times, are given by God. But these ones, Hanukkah, which represents the, um, or celebrates the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC, and this one that we're looking at in Esther, Purim, the Feast of Purim. Feast of Lots, if you want to call it that. So Purim is instituted. This feast in Esther chapter number 9, verse 17 there tells us, the 13th day of the month of Adar, on the 14th day of the same, rest the day and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So this is instituted so that they can um, remember and memorialize not their own national pride, although that's an element, but the hand of God God upon his people. And that's what the, the Feast of Purim is about. The other feasts connected with the Exodus and coming out of Egypt. But again, this festival is set up to, to remember God's deliverance because God has delivered these people once again. Uh, Purim is a Hebrew plural for the word, uh, which means lots. So that's taken from the lots that were cast by Haman in chapter number 3 and verse 7. So one of the things that characterizes the feasts of Israel is that they look back in key moments. That's, that's the point. Now, there's a prophetic element to the feasts that, that picture Christ because in everything that God sets up, it pictures Christ. And you take this from the tabernacle, take it to the temple, you take it to these feasts. It's a picture of Christ and his work. But, but for the, the Jews, as they celebrate these feasts, they are also have the purpose of pointing them back. That when they celebrate Passover, they're pointed back. When they celebrate um, tabernacles, they're pointed back to the time that they were brought out of Egypt, that they were delivered. 
So when they, they go through these feasts and, and, you know, unbelieving Israel today does it, they're looking back at what God has done. Now, we don't celebrate uh, any of these feasts today, though it's fun to do some of them. We've done a few. We've done Passover. We've done tabernacles. And, you know, it, it's fun to do, but that, that, we don't have that. We have the Lord's table. We have the Lord's day. What do I mean by that? Maybe something that's lost its popularity amongst evangelical Christians. But honestly, when you look biblically, you look at the creation account and the day of rest, I think the Lord is clear. It's not legalism, but there's a day that we devote to the Lord. For us, it's Sunday, first day of the week, and we gather together. And, 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 and we do look back. We've done that this morning, have we not? What do we look back to? Calvary. Calvary. Yes, there's a prophetic element we look forward, but ultimately, we look back. And we remember what? God's deliverance. How he has his hand on us. How he saved us. How he has allowed us to walk away and not face the judgment, the first decree, death. And actually at Calvary's cross, he's brought life and hope. And now because we have that, we look back to the root cause of that, the beginning, the datum point, the point that everything else is anchored off. Calvary's cross when the Lamb of God gave his life for us. Gathering today, we look back. We look back. And that's what the people of God did at Purim, the feast that was begun was a feast to make them look back and remember what God had done. Now, when we fast forward to today, I, you know, honestly, in a lot of churches, when they gather on a Sunday, do they even remember? Do they even reflect? Do they look back and thank God for the deliverance? I wish it was so. Israel fully understood that their deliverance was from the Lord. And because of that, they set up this time to remember that God had delivered them once again. You can knock Israel. You can mock Israel. You can look at how they get off track and they do. But one thing they were good at was marking out times where they would remember God. Now, how much more so should we be better than them? Say, why should we be better than them, Pastor? We should be better than them because we have, number one, the complete revelation of God. Number two, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday should be our Feast of Purim where we gather together and look at each other and go, do you know what? We're here because God has delivered us. Every Sunday. So the Jews, the victory's won. God is in it. And the Jews recognize it. And they make a feast, a day of feasting and gladness where they remember their day of deliverance. And ultimately, things have ended in a much better place than it looked like for a long time for the people of God. They're now in a place of relative peace. 
They're now in a place where Mordecai is second in command of the land. Esther is queen. The enemies of God have been wiped out. And things look good. Where we're going to leave Israel. At the end of chapter number 9 and chapter number 10 of Esther. But we understand that history will reveal further perils for the Jewish nation. Mordecai wouldn't be in power forever. Esther wouldn't be queen forever. And the the message there is, and the message for us is, that it's so easy, hear me now, to rely and look to people. No doubt Esther and Mordecai were heroes and lifted up. But one day they'd be gone. No doubt Joseph was lifted up. But one day he was gone. And the point is that we have to remember Yes, it's all right to look at the heroes of the faith. Yes, it's all right to look down at the people that have gone before. Yes, it's all right to look and you know, pull up the theologians of the past, the great Christians of the past, the missionaries, Hudson Taylor that we looked at. Hudson Taylor's gone. Spurgeon, gone. Pastor Kevin, still here. But will be gone at some point. So the thing is, who do we look to? We have to see behind the people that God uses and see the God that uses people. That our hope is in him and him alone. But we forget this. How do we forget this? We forget this because when the easy time comes, off we go. We're okay, duck. And God gets called in. When does he get called in? When we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Treat like God like a spare wheel in the car. How much time do you spend using the spare wheel in your car? Not much. When do you use it? When you're in trouble. Get you out of a hole. What happens when you get out of the hole and you get to the garage or you get home? Leave the spare wheel on. Not now you don't. You get the other one fixed. Put the spare wheel in the back of the car. Off you go. That's how we treat God. That's how Israel treated God. Israel isn't alone in their guilt. We are up to our necks in it. And time and time again, we are good at calling upon God's name. Whenever we're in trouble. But then when we think it's okay and we're in this little place of peace and you know we've got uh, you know Christian politicians and places of government, or we've got a, a friendly local mayor or a council, we think we're all right. We're not. We're not. We need God all the time. All the time. And the book of Esther reminds us that God is always there. So these two things marry. We need God all the time and all the time God is there. 
With God, we have the victory. With God, we are overcomers. Why? Because it's God that supplies the victory. It's God that brings victory to the oppressed. Luke 4, 18, you have to turn there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them which are bruised. See, it's God that provides the victory, the deliverance. It's our God that brings assurance to those that are afraid. Psalm 53, what time I'm afraid, what? I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. It's our God that brings praise to our circumstances. Esther chapter 9 verse 28. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not feel from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them that perish from their seed. Point them back to God who is there, a God who keeps his promises. So what I want to say to you as I wrap this up, as we've looked through Esther, the book where God's name is not mentioned, the pre- I want to say to you tonight, the presence of God is everywhere in that book. I want to say to you tonight that in your life, no matter where you are, what you're facing, what you're going through, that the God of present is present with you. He's a God that keeps his promises. And he's a God that has said to those that know him and love him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what are you going through right now? What threat's looming over you? What worry encompasses you? Whatever it is, go to God. Because he's there. He is in the midst with you. And he is the one that can bring compassion, consolation, comfort. And ultimately, he is the one that will deliver the victory for you. If Esther teaches us anything tonight, is that God is there, even when we don't see his name, and that he keeps his promises to his people. He's faithful and he's true. The day of deliverance has come for the people of God. And that God can still give you that same day, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through. Let's pray.